Good morning. If you are new, I am so glad that you're here with us today. My name is Casey Pate. I am director of City Creative here at City Life. That was my announcement. Come on out to team night this Tuesday. Um, I'm also happen to be married to the lead pastor, the one, the only Chris Pate, who is running around here this morning, helping set up, doing things, serving like he does because he's a true servant leader. Yes, I'm going to brag on my husband, especially because he's not in the room, but uh, we're so, so glad that you guys are with us. We are in a new series called Generations, and this isn't just a new series. This is actually a campaign that is taking us into the next era of City Life Houston. It is the next phase of where we are going. So if you weren't here last week, I'll just show a picture of the building. This is phase one, and the building you're looking at is the building right next door to us that we purchased. And this is our plan for phase one. You see our Generations theme verse on here, Psalm 145. And uh, we'll be talking a lot more about that if you happened to miss last week and you're like, I'm not sure what's going on right now. It's okay, you can catch up. We also introduced these pledge cards. You will see them in your seat. If you have not already grabbed one, we believe that God is doing something phenomenal in this house and we need help. This is not my story. This isn't Chris Pate Ministries' story. This is our story about what God is doing here. And we just have this really bold, audacious goal that we're gonna have 100% participation in the Generations campaign through giving, whether that means a one-time $25 gift, which by the way, for your contribution of $25 or more, or by filling out a pledge card, you do get a free Generations t-shirt. So if uh, you wanna grab that card or take your one-time gift, head out to City Life Central after service, they will fix you up really, really great. So that is what we have going on. We're asking you to do three things, pray, ask, and commit. And we believe that God is going to do something so, so significant here as we go into the next era. We even had last week, I love this, we had one of our very own city kids fill out his own pledge card. I know, right? I know. It's amazing. Of his own will and volition, he filled out a pledge card and said, this is what I'm going to do because I'm part of the next generation. This is my story too. And I love that. I hope the children always lead the way for us. It's not just Whitney Houston's lyrics. We really, really, really believe in that. So it's a very, very exciting time. Uh, if you've been with us for a long time or if you're just brand new and joining us, I want to tell you this is an amazing time to be part of City Life Houston this story is just beginning and it is a really significant moment for us. So we also debuted the Generations, official Generations video. So if you did not see that last week during service, you can find it on our YouTube channel, our Instagram page. It's worth your time to view it because we share in full detail what the full plan is and we also tell our story. And trust me when I say, just like the video says, you cannot make this stuff up. The story of City Life is so crazy in the best possible way. So if you haven't watched that video, you can find that. And I have to tell you, for me, it was so fun 
to go back through all of my old pictures, old videos, trying to put together for the video for this campaign, writing the script for the video, going back and telling our story was so fun to me. And one of the things that I did was I went through all of, all of my accounts, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram's kind of my, my preferred social media of choice. Uh, you know, Facebook is, is Facebook. It's okay. If, if you love it in here, that, that's fine. But um, I went back and I was like, hmm, I know I have older Facebook pictures, but what would be some of the first Instagram posts that I would have made being here in Houston? And I want to show you on the screen. This is so fun. Uh, this is back in 2012. And that picture is a picture of my dining room. And here's the caption, continuing to test the limits of how many people we can cram into our dining space for newcomers dinner. Good problem to have. So exciting, right? And this is also when Instagram was kind of new and we, were, we had four filters to use and we ruined all of our pictures by putting these, these terrible filters on our Instagram photos, okay? I wish I could take them back. I wish I had the original pictures because we were trying to be, you know, vibey and artsy with, with like the four that they gave us. It's improved a lot, right? We're grateful for that. But here is the, the filters ruining the pictures in this story. So uh, you look over here, sneaking behind the sound booth to look at another record attendance. Exciting days in our midst. So, so thankful. That was when we were in the theater. It's so fun to look back on that. And I, I thought about, well, I wonder how long Instagram's been in existence. And I looked it up, and it was um, October of 2010, which we moved here in June of 2010. And so... Instagram's journey coincides a lot with our own journey. And it made me wonder, what was the very first Instagram post I ever made to my account? I did not join until July of 2011. I was a little bit behind the game, but that's okay. We caught up. Nobody was really using it all that much in the beginning days. And so I want to show you my very first Instagram post. And it was a significant moment because July 29th, 2011, our little Jackson was born. It was a special day, and I commemorated it by using a terrible filter and posting. I'm proud to tell you 11 years later, it still has no likes and one comment. That's okay. I don't, I don't get all of my identity and my acceptance out of social media. Um, I am a fan of it, by the way. It's, uh, I, I happen to believe it's amoral. It's really what you do with it that matters. That's your relationship to it. Side note, and of course you expect the creative director to say that up here on a Sunday morning, but you know, it, it's so funny how you're looking and you're, you're getting a snapshot of my profile over here. What you would gather from this is this lady had a baby, clearly. She's really proud of this child. Um, also, she's playing around with every filter that there is to try to see which one looks best. So there's multiple pictures of baby Jackson and to my two teenagers, 16 and 18 years old, I, I'm sorry, your life is not as well documented as Jackson's because Instagram didn't exist. I barely had a digital camera when my son was born 18 years ago. Yes, I really am that old. I have a senior in high school. But, you know, it's, it's so interesting about the things that we choose to use on our own accounts to project something, to say, this is our things I'm really excited about. This is kind of what I, uh, themes of my life. And so I want to do a little exercise with you. And again, I'm using myself as an example, but we're going to go from 2011 and we're going to fast forward to today. And I'm going to show you a snapshot of my most current 
I tried to give you a good sample size here. So this is my Instagram account. So as you are looking at my Instagram account, I, I wonder if you see certain things that stand out to you as maybe themes or like, I think she's really into this. This is exciting. Anybody want to just throw out a guess as you're looking up there? What, what would you say would be a theme for my plants? Thank you. You know me. It's documented. It's there. What? Coffee. Yes, again. Not only coffee, but my obnoxious coffee mug collection also makes an appearance very regularly. Anything else? Anything else? Ah, Sophie, our dog. She's on there a couple of times. I uh, made some reels when I had COVID and I was super bored, so Sophie got some reels going on there. You're very attractive children. You're very attractive children. Thank you, son. It's true. I am about my family, and as you can see, most of my feed is taken up by my family, and, and I want it to be that way because I do love my family. I'm proud of my children. And, you know, it got me, it got me thinking that if, if you were to show up at my house and you said, these are themes, I think this is kind of who you're saying you are. And you were to show up at my house and all of the plants in my house were dead. They were neglected. They weren't being taken care of. Um, or worse, maybe there were just zero plants at all. Um, or even weirder, what if you showed up at my house and you just saw cats everywhere. This is only for the sake of illustration. I, I can't with cats. I'm sorry, cat people. But if you showed up at my house and there were cat posters all over the wall, there were cats roaming around, there was cat hair on everything making me sneeze because I'm deathly allergic to cats, you, you would go, that's interesting because I, I didn't really see this anywhere. I didn't really see that you were about cats when I was looking at the snapshot of your life. And today we're going to look at what it means to be love to our city and in our lives. And I want us all to ask this question today. If we say we love God and we love people, would a snapshot of our everyday lives reflect that we are indeed about what we say we're about? If you looked at that Instagram profile and you saw something inconsistent, you would say, you're not really about what you're saying you're about or what you're projecting that you're about. And I want us to all take an honest look at ourselves today and ask yourself that question. And hopefully by the end of our time together, the Lord will speak to you as he's always faithful to do. And so this is a pretty important question because according to Jesus in the scriptures, the very way the world looks at us and identifies us as believers says it's by our love. We can show that scripture in John it says that you will know my, there we go. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So clearly, this is an important thing to get. If, if we're to be identified from the outside, from looking in, and, set, and Jesus says, this is the very way people will know that you belong to me. I think it's important. And so if we're going to talk about love, I think we first need to define love and what love is because it is abundant in our world and it is also abundant in definitions of what love is. This person will say, this is what love is. This person says that. There's so many opinions about what love is. We throw the word flippantly around like, 
I love coffee, which is true, I do. But is it on the same level as loving my family? Loving God? No. But we, we use that word pretty flippantly. So if we're to define love, I think as believers, we have to go to the scripture because that's our authority for life. And don't worry, there's plenty of ways that the Bible would tell us how we define love. And there's one really important one right off the bat. So let's look at this scripture in 1 John. We are looking, we're asking the question, we're making a social media profile snapshot of what love looks like. If we were to have a, pretend with me, a Jesus's Instagram account, what themes would we find? And you can show the picture that, um, there, there we go. I, I added to this uh, picture, an actual picture of the Sea of Galilee. I was there in Israel. So I feel like that, that helps us imagine a little further. Um, you know, we all know Jesus wouldn't be bragging on all the things that he did on so He wouldn't be doing that. But maybe he would be enjoying his father's creation. He's like, look at the Sea of Galilee. Isn't it beautiful? Look at what my father has done. I love his creation and I'm enjoying it. Maybe that's how I imagine it. But... If we were to look through and take a snapshot in the scripture, we would first find this definition of love in 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And there is our answer. Before love is a verb, it is a noun. He is a person. God himself is love. So if we are to model our lives, if we are to be love, it is safe to say that we can look at God's behavior towards his people. We can look at the life of Jesus when he lived on earth to see how he related to people. And we could get a very clear snapshot we could build an Instagram profile grid of some themes that we would find about how God's love is expressed through the scriptures. So let's look at the first one. One of the first themes that we see in the scriptures is that God's love is compassionate. It's compassionate. The definition in the Greek translation of compassion means to be moved in the bowels that's really a graphic description. That's a very specific thing. Kind of makes me think of the phrase that, that turned to my stomach, you know, when I heard that. Things like that's, that's a real thing according to this definition. And, and when you are moved so deep into your core like that, that goes beyond just feeling sorry for someone or something. That would be sympathy. It goes beyond I'm trying to imagine myself in your shoes and I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, that's good and that's empathy and that's a, a great thing to do. But compassion goes further than those two things. Compassion says, I feel your pain in my heart and I must do something about it. I can't sit here and do nothing. It moves us. So let's look at some ways we see God's compassion. In the Old Testament, we see that God has compassion on his people. Look at these two examples. 
second kings, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. The Psalm says, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. Now, I have to note here that these references to God having compassion on his people is a result of them getting themselves into the situation that they got in. This was not necessarily an undeserved place that Israel found themselves in constantly. God is trying to say, here's the way, you're my people, I love you, I've set you apart, this is what to do, and Israel constantly goes, cool, this is what we do, and they go another way, they choose their own way over and over and over and over. So when we see God being moved with compassion towards his people, he is actually responding to a mess they got themselves in. He said, hey, I showed you the way, and you still chose, and God could just be angry about it and send his lightning bolts from heaven and punish them for going the wrong way, but he, He's moved with compassion. He sees his people enslaved, oppressed, hurting, in pain. And he says, okay, okay, I got to do something about this. I'm going to send another prophet again to tell you again, to bring you back to me again. That is the compassion of God toward his people in the Old Testament. And we see this story over and over again. That is the story of the Old Testament. In a nutshell, it is God choosing his people, setting them apart, telling them this is what to do. They do opposite. God has to bring a deliverer to get them out of their mess, only to turn around and they get in the same mess again. But God responds with compassion towards his people. That's amazing to me. I would not respond like that to, uh, I mean, my children can probably testify when we say to do something and it's not done. Maybe compassion's not my first response, okay? So we're not God, and thank God for it. Let's look at Jesus' compassion in the New Testament. Just some examples. There's many examples. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, when he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He taught on compassion. He gave us examples how to model compassion through stories like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son. And I have to point out here, as we look at the life of Jesus and how he behaved towards his beloved, his, his, the chosen people, he says, it's not always convenient to be moved by compassion. You don't always get to choose when you're moved at that level in your core. It was not convenient for Jesus to be moved with compassion, to weep over his people, to see them like sheep without a shepherd. And a great example of this is what I put on here, Matthew 14. Here's what was happening behind the scenes when we read that scripture. Jesus had just learned that John the Baptist had been beheaded. This was a terrible, awful thing. This was someone he loved. This was someone he respected. He gave his very life for this cause that Jesus is talking about. He is grieved over the loss of this amazing man. And the scripture says, 
When he heard about it, he got in the boat to get away from everyone. I can imagine that. He needs to grieve. He needs to process. He needs to feel his emotions. He says, I'm just, I need to be alone. I can't be around people right now. But what happened? The crowd saw him, went to him, followed him, and Jesus' response was not, um, you guys are going to have to check back with me in the morning. This is not a great time right now. Um, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do people thing right now, okay? I need you to just get away. That is not his response. He saw them. He had compassion on them. He saw people broken, sick, with disease. He saw them oppressed by demons. And he said, your pain is in my heart, and I cannot I cannot sit here and do nothing. So it was not convenient for Jesus to have be moved with compassion, yet he did it anyway. Compassion moved him to heal the sick. And you know, when we moved here, we found out that Houston was number one in human trafficking in the nation. That was a pain in our heart that we said, we cannot just leave this and be silent and do nothing. So we all gathered around and, and started a ministry that reached out to these women in these, in these terrible positions and, and showed them there's a better way. You can come. You can get out of this. You can be rescued because of compassion. We could not sit by and do nothing. When we heard about foster children sleeping on the floor because there was no bed for them, they're literally on the floor of the, of the worker having to, they've, they've been ripped out of a terrible situation, ripped apart from their lives, and they're sleeping on the floor. We said, as a church, no, no, this pain is in our heart, and we cannot do nothing. So we organized bed builds. We're building beds for foster children to have a place to lay their head. And I would say our compassion for the next generation goes on because those same foster children, the Lionheart Academy, which we talked about, having a place for children to come and learn about Jesus, be educated and be cared for in a childcare environment that is preaching Jesus. We want scholarship spots open in Lionheart Academy that stay open because when one of those children gets ripped out of their house and their life is turned upside down and they have been mistreated and not cared for well, we want to say there's a spot for you tomorrow where you can be taken care of, where you can be fed, where you can be loved, where you can see value and say that you matter and there's a place for you and you're going to learn about the love of God and you're going to learn about Jesus. That is why we're in this generation's campaign. We want to be led with compassion like our Savior, like our God was led with compassion. And that is why we are doing the things that we're doing. But you know it's not convenient. You're going to be moved with compassion at a time that's not great for you. And you're going to have to ask the question, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to just sit and feel bad about it? Or am I going to be moved to do something? And the model and the example that God gave us is that he responded with compassion. He did something to fix the situation. So let's go to the next one. We know that we've seen God is compassionate. We're building a profile here. This is a theme we're seeing. And there's many themes. This, these are not the only ones, right? Scripture's replete with, with messages and scriptures about love. You can find so many different themes in the Bible about this. So obviously, again, it's a snapshot. And the second thing that we see is that 
God's behavior towards his people is reconciliatory, ciliatory, excuse me, in nature. That's a tough word to say. And we see this from the very beginning of the whole Bible. It's, it's like the first chapter. We, we messed it up within the first few chapters of the first book of the Bible. Like it didn't, it didn't go very long before humanity completely messed up God's plan. And so you see the rest of the story is actually God's plan in motion to bring everyone back to himself, to restore people into relationship. That's the heart of reconciliation. That's what reconciliation does. It's this idea that you're on the outside, you've been brought out where you were in at one time, but something has cast you outside and we're bringing you back into the restored intent of where you're supposed to be. Let's look at a couple examples of reconciliation at work here. We have many, many great scriptures about this. In Colossians, for him, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, me, you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, not the lovely version of you, not the I got it together version of you. No, you were doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Thank you, Lord. Let's look at the next one. Not only does the reconciliation reconcile us to God, but now he says we have a responsibility to help reconcile man to man. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us a responsibility, not counting their trespasses. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, because of that, we're ambassadors. We're representatives of this kind of reconciliation. And I have to tell you, I don't really see the world very reconciled at the moment. I just don't see a lot of it. I see actually the opposite. I see polarizing ends, gathering each other. I see people that are, are gathering, that are like them, that think like them, that believe the same thing they believe, that have the same political views because we don't have an urgency to reach across and bring you back into relationship with what we're doing. And I think that is one of the reasons that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation because this is not something you see the world doing very well. I think they're attempting, I think they're trying, but this is something that sets us apart as believers because we know what it was like to be on the outside. We know what it was like to be rescued and be brought back in when we did not earn it or deserve it. And so we have the urgency as believers to go and get those people and bring them back in. That's why we have a DNA team that we establish. We have a group of people that are the guardians of our unity in this church, and we fight really hard for it to educate, to be in relationship with, and to help model what it looks like to have unity in a diverse city. 
And that is why we're doing things like relational foundations that you heard plug. Come out to relational foundations today. We're sitting across the table from someone who is different than you and saying, you matter to me because you were made in God's image. How can I understand you better? How can I help reconcile the broken relationships that we have with one another in our city? And I believe God has given us the mantle even specifically in this house, in City Life Houston, because if you look around you, it looks like heaven in here. And we need to see more of that in the city of Houston. We need to see these relationships being reconciled. So I think God has given us this mantle to carry and to say, I too was once outside. I too was once in a broken relationship and I have been restored. I have been brought back into the family. I have been reconciled to God. Now, let's see what it looks like to be reconciled with each other. Reconciliation is huge, and it is definitely a theme in our snapshot of love demonstrated, of love expressed. The very scripture, one of the, the main scriptures about salvation, Romans 5, 8, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the idea of reconciliation. We were outside. We didn't deserve that, yet God in his tremendous, tremendous love has brought us back in. Be love in our city looks like bringing the ministry of reconciliation. And the last slide I want to look at today is we've seen that God's love is compassionate, it's reconciliatory, and it is absolutely sacrificial. And you probably know where I'm headed with this. We've already quoted it today. Kayla did an amazing job encouraging us from the word during worship. And like she said, don't check out because we know these scriptures, these are familiar to us because we see that God's ultimate love expressed for us is sacrificial and even going further to say it's sacrificial giving towards us. Let's look here at a few examples Again, many examples that we could choose. This scripture just happens to be kind of what our entire belief hinges upon is this idea that for God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave sacrificially. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First John 4 in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, it wasn't us, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And lastly, look at Jesus himself, his life. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the dictionary definition of sacrifice is the act of giving up something highly valued for the sake of something else considered to have greater value or claim. And I need you to think about that for a second. God, looking at you and I, decided that bringing us back into relationship with him so that we could know him, we could experience love, we could spend eternity with him in heaven. He decided 
that that was of greater value than his very own son who he loved. He sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice. Maybe it's been a minute since you remembered that you were loved like that. Maybe you didn't know you were loved like that. Maybe you didn't realize that that Jesus paid this price for us, but he did. He did it for you and he did it for me. And the thing about sacrifice is there's always some kind of loss involved. There's always something that's going to be required of you to give up. That is part of sacrifice. We do not see God's love in operation apart from this kind of sacrificial giving. It's, it's all through scripture. And God might ask something of you today to count the cost to give up in order to walk this love out. It might cost you your pride. It might cost you your security and what, what you think the things that you have security in. It, it might involve financial giving. It's definitely going to involve you risk getting hurt because anytime we love, anytime we put ourselves out there, we are always at great risk of that happening. But this kind of radical love is not asking what you will get back in return. The value of another person or thing has already been determined before you know the outcome. And Jesus, not only did he do that, but for the joy, the Bible says, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he gave, he went the extra mile, he counted the cost, and he went ahead and went the entire distance. That is an inspiring kind of love to me. And you know, when we moved here, we got asked that question of the Lord, um, count the cost to come here, to plant your lives, to be in Houston, uproot your family. We went through all of our savings trying to be debt-free as we moved here. We, we weren't killing it in the game uh, financially anyway. We were youth pastors, so, you know. But we were happy. We were content with where God had us. And, and, and God said, but would you count the cost and risk this for what I believe I want to do in this city? And... We counted that cost. If you watched the video last week, we, we shared there was, a, there was a 2% chance of us making it out of the situation. We came into with a group of people who was trying to believe that God still had a vision and a mission for this house. 2% chance. If you're in a 2% chance of something today, making it, I wanna encourage you that that doesn't have to be the end of your story. None of that matters when God is the one writing this story. And we counted the cost. And I wish I could say it's felt like all reward. <laughs> it has not. In 12 years, there are times when I question that. God, was it worth it to give what we gave up? Was it worth it to go the distance because I've been hurt so much and I don't want to put myself out there again? I've been, I, I've been misunderstood and, and now we're like, is, is Will there be people that actually want to come and join in this story and do this with us? It has not all felt like reward. And it takes a tremendous amount of risk to do something that God has called you to do and ask you to count the cost and pay the price. And we often find ourselves asking, 
What happens if I dare pay this price? Am I going to be rejected? Am I going to be hurt? And I want to ask instead, what is the price you pay if you don't? Risk for love. What is the price that we pay? And I want to read a quote to you by C.S. Lewis that is very sobering, but a great illustration of this idea. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Why? Because we weren't created to live apart from love and in relationship with others. God did not create us that way. He's a relational God. He wants a relationship with us and he's created us to be in relationship with people. But that requires compassion. That requires reconciliation. That requires sacrificial giving. And I want to end today with asking the question I did in the beginning. If we took a snapshot of your life and we saw your day to day, would the things that you say you're about be actually what you're about? And it's a challenging thing to have the mirror looking in the mirror and it's Jesus looking back at us, that's challenging because he did, he went all the way and he did what we could have never done. So we will be challenged, but we could do one of three things here. We could feel condemnation, which is from the enemy, shame. Oh gosh, I'm so terrible, God. I don't, I don't think about anybody but myself. I could never, ever do that. I could never do what God is asking me to do to love people like that. I never could. And that causes us to run away from God. Our own justification, which comes from our flesh, is, well, God, here's all the reasons why you, you see. You see how busy I am. You see that I cannot be inconvenienced. You see that I'm on a mission. And, and I, uh, all of the reasons why we're not walking out the things that God has called us to walk out in love. But the third option is my prayer for you today, and that is conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's okay for your heart to be pierced when you are looking at a perfect savior who went all the way for you and paid the ultimate price and did what you could never do. It's okay to look at that and go, oh my gosh, wow, I, I can't, I can't do this. I need a savior. I need to be rescued because the truth is God has given you his very spirit to be able to love like he loves, like we're talking about today. He's actually given us the ability to do that, but it's not coming from us. And it is not without action. Everything that you saw in here that we talked about today, everything in the snapshot was about action. 
We were moved, we did this. We felt this, we did this. It was action oriented. And we will not be able to love well from the comfort of our couch. I'm sorry, we're just not. We're not gonna be able to really walk out these things God has asked us to do. And the last couple of years have done a number on us in that way. It's created some things, it's done great things, but also created some things that maybe we should look at the wake of what's left behind from the last two years and see, have, have I been creating a life of safety and comfort? Not because, of the, not because of the actual virus, I'm talking about what happens as a result in, in us from living this way that we really weren't designed to live apart from people and community. Are we carefully curating community for our convenience and comfort? Are the people you surround yourself with pushing you to be this kind of compassionate, reconciling, sacrificial love to others? Are you being that for other people? That's what we're here to do. That's why the church is the church. We're a community that challenges each other to be better. We say, God did this for me and I can do this for you. I can go the distance because Jesus did this for me. Our savior suffered. He was mistreated. He was rejected. He was broken. He was bruised. He was despised and ultimately gave his life. What is my response to that? What's my response to a love like that, that I did not earn or deserve? Our response can be, God, help us be love to a hurting and dying world. God, help us to be love in Houston, Texas, that people are waiting on the other side of your love to be brought back in. They're waiting. God doesn't want your neighbor to do it. He wants you to do it. There's specific people God has put in your path that are waiting on the other side of your sacrifice. And it may not feel like it's worth it in the moment, but it is worth it in the end. Giving, serving, giving of our lives creates a richer, wide open, expansive kind of existence that God has actually called us to live. And you can walk away from this message today and still choose to live a safe life. You can keep your circle close. You can hold your affections close. You can hold your possessions close. But I'm gonna tell you that a safe life is a small life. And that is not the kind of life God has actually created us to live. It will not ultimately fulfill you because he has created this wide open space for us to live and love in and give of ourselves. And when we give, the greater the work, the greater the reward in the end, the more that we suffer, the more we give of ourselves, the more we become like Christ and the more it feels worth it. Can we ask ourselves this question today? Can we hold up the mirror and say, Am I about what I say I'm about? And if your answer is no, I'd ask you just to pray. We're gonna close with communion. The worship team's gonna come up. Communion is a perfect opportunity to reflect and remember what our Savior did. If you haven't thought about His sacrifice for you in a while, maybe it's time for you to think about it. The kind of sacrifice that He gave 
And because he did it for us, we now have been empowered to do this for others.